Hey everyone, welcome to the Teen Screen Feminism Podcast. I'm Athena Bellis and this is episode two of season one. A quick note on this episode. In this episode, I discuss pregnancy, miscarriage and abortion as they're represented in the films explored. While I don't discuss these issues in graphic detail, listener discretion is advised. And spoilers for the films under discussion also abound. I am absolutely obsessed with pre-code films. I have been since probably the age of 16 or 17. I love 1930s cinema. And this is a little bit of where we begin, although we will backtrack a little bit to the 1910s. And for some of you listening at home, it might seem like kind of a funny place to start because many of us tend to think of teen films starting in maybe the 70s or the 80s, maybe a little earlier in the 1940s with the Andy Hardy movies or the 50s with films like Rebel Without a Cause. But actually, films about teenagers existed in fact, decades before this, and they're really, really interesting and I think quite exciting. So a quick note before we keep going on what I mean when I say pre-code films, because I mentioned that term just a minute ago. So in 1934 in Hollywood, there began to be a more strict enforcement of a censorship code that was actually drafted earlier in 1930, and that was called the Motion Picture Production Code which was drafted through a group called the Production Code Administration. And that code um, is sometimes also referred to as the Hayes Code, named after the chairman of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America organization, Will Hayes. And he was one of the central enforcers of the code, particularly quite early on. The code itself was actually written by religious authorities, Christian religious authorities, obviously. And it explained in quite clear terms what was allowed to be shown and what could not be shown in movies. And you can actually read this code for free on the internet. Um, It's quite easy to find. What's so interesting about the code in this context of, you know, this exploration of teenagers in film is that a lot of the justification for the code's very existence was totally about the effect of media on young people. And so in the code, we get this statement quite early on. It says, Mature minds may easily understand and accept without harm subject matter in plots which does younger people positive harm. And of course, they don't elaborate. They don't go on to explain how or why this harm that they say occurs does happen. But there's a real sense in which policymakers and the people who are doing the censoring believed that young people needed to be protected and also controlled. The media that they consumed had to be controlled. So before 1934, that that period between 1930 when it was first drafted and then 1934 when it was strictly enforced, the code was kind of adopted, but not so heavily regulated. And that's where you get this amazing sweet spot of Hollywood cinema. It's just it's just my favourite thing ever. You see some truly fascinating and honestly quite shocking films, and I'll discuss a couple of those in this week's episode. As Thomas Doherty writes of this little tiny four-year period, pre-code Hollywood 
is from another universe. It lays bare what Hollywood under the later Hayes Code did its best to cover up and push off screen. So some films from this period, but also even decades beforehand, talked about pregnancy and even abortion in relatively explicit terms, in ways that might actually surprise us. So, for example, there was a very popular film from 1916. It was called Where Are My Children? And you can watch it for free on the internet. And that film follows the story of a district attorney, played by Tyrone Power, and his wife is having abortion after abortion behind his back so that she can avoid motherhood, which she sort of sees as a drag, and instead she wants to maintain her party girl lifestyle. While this is all happening, their housekeeper's innocent teenage daughter is also seduced by a member of the district attorney's family, and she falls pregnant and she's forced by this older lover to get an abortion and she dies from it. And then when the district attorney is investigating the girl's death, he also manages to find out his wife's secret and he then, it just snowballs obviously, he then also discovers that it's the same secret that like all of her socialite friends have as well. They're all in on it, they're all doing it. And so the film is like very hyperbolic anti-abortion propaganda from start to finish and it's even got scenes where the women are like taunted and plagued by the whispers of their so-called unwanted children who are represented as these like angelic cherubs floating in the sky. And by the time the district attorney's wife decides to give up what the film refers to as her selfish ways it's too late anyway because the serial abortions that she's had have destroyed her ability to carry a child to term. And there's this very dramatic punishment that she has to endure for trying to have control over her own body. And the punishment takes the form of having to sit next to her husband day in and day out for the rest of her life as he looks at her hurt and disappointed and angry and asks her, where are my children? Really fascinating movie. So this extreme anxiety and fear-mongering about birth control and abortion actually makes a lot of sense within this time period. So during that time, the 1910s and 20s, we see the first birth control clinics beginning to open in the US. And also at the same time, the women's rights movement was gaining some ground. And there was a lot of outcry from conservatives and religious figures around the country. And a film like Where Are My Children really plays into all of this anxiety and fear-mongering and conservatism because in the ads there's all this boasting about how the film had been endorsed by a number of prominent Catholic priests at the time. So in the 10s and 20s, we see this new understanding of a new kind of woman and a number of social shifts that she was seen to have brought about. And in the movies, she gets represented as this sort of sexy vamp kind of vixen character. And she's very appealing because she's highly sexual. She's very exciting for that reason. Um, She's also very glamorous. But at the same time, she's also bringing up a lot of fears and causing a lot of resistances about these issues 
around women's increasing power in a world that wants to maintain the supremacy of patriarchal power. And so even though she's this seductive beauty who is very wanted and glamorized, she also is represented as a menace and actually gets punished a lot of the time as well for that very seductive power that she has. So more specifically in films about teenagers getting pregnant during that period, we see quite a strongly educational drive in this representation of punishment, which I've just outlined. And so the punishment is meant to put young people off from bad behaviour and from committing the sins of modern society. And at the same time, which is really interesting, I think, it's also meant to educate parents in how to discipline their children. And all of this can be seen in this week's film that we're looking at. It's a film called The Road to Ruin, and it was a film that was made twice, firstly in 1928 as a silent, and then it was remade in 1934 with sound. And the first version, the 1928 version, was directed by Norton Parker. And then the 1934 sound version was directed by Dorothy Davenport. Interestingly, both of the films starred Helen Foster as the wayward teenage girl. The plot follows the story of a teenage girl. She's named Sally in the silent film and then Anne in the sound film. And she's a good all-American girl who through no fault of her own really, becomes corrupted by parties and drinking and drugs and premarital sex. Here's a clip from one of the first scenes in which Anne is driven to behave badly by her friend Eve. So aptly named Eve, very subtle this film is. Um, And Eve seduces her to behave badly, first through offering her alcohol, then by smoking cigarettes, and then finally encouraging her to have these desirous thoughts about one of their male classmates. Don't let it throw you. Smart girl. I can see where we're going to have some swell times together. Say, do you know that Tommy's all hot and bothered about you? I kind of like him, too. The movie poster for The Road to Ruin declares that the film is a timely warning to parents of today. And the illustration on the poster is really fabulous and over the top. It has a scantily clad girl lying on a bed with a mysterious man leaning over her. He's kissing her and grabbing her hand. And then there's a devil rendered in red, of course, and complete with horns and a trident and even hellfire emanating from his body. And he's watching over the couple embracing and he's grinning like his kind of plan is coming to fruition. There's a text bubble next to the devil's head and it reads, modern youth burned at the altar of ignorance. So sexuality is represented here as really charged. It's so dangerous and so corrupt. Anne is repeatedly taken advantage of and even coerced into having sex, including by older men. Men are seen to be plotting the seduction of various girls and women in the film, and even her father can't be trusted. Her father is having an affair behind his wife's back. And so it seems that the film and the advertising around the film as well creates some sort of feeling that there is an inherent link between immorality and sexuality, because it really doesn't 
show any functional or healthy relationships. It seems to say to us, you know, society is corrupt and young people are unprotected by adults. And these adults in the movie are represented as either clueless and way too permissive, as we see with Anne's mother, or they're seen as predatory and dangerous, as we see with almost every male character in the movie. So, for example, Anne's parents are totally clueless as to their daughter's behaviour and activities, and that ends up being the ruination of their daughter. And here's a little clip showing that. I can't imagine what keeping Anne so late. You ought to be used to it by now. I certainly don't approve of the way these youngsters chase all the time. Oh, who's being old-fashioned now? I like to have her with young people. Good for her. Don't you think it also might be good for her to come home to her meals once in a while? I'll put dinner on the table right away. We won't wait any longer for her. So it's not until that ultimate symbol of discipline, the police, come along and intervene, complete with an overtly moralistic female juvenile delinquent expert and physician who deems Anne, and this is a direct quote, a sex delinquent in their diagnostic notes. We're not here to punish. Our only hope, in fact, our only aim in this juvenile department is to help you youngsters, to set your feet again on the right road, to stop you before it's too late. But if it is too late... But it isn't. If you put all this behind you, Oh, you can still make something fine and worthwhile with your life. But Mother and Daddy will never forgive me. I'm afraid they're going to have a harder time forgiving themselves. At the very end of the story, Anne dies after a botched abortion that an older lover forces her to have. And she dies begging and crying, really, for her parents to forgive her. This film is anything but subtle. You can see also the similarities with Where Are My Children, particularly in the way that both of the girls die from botched abortion, so there's a real sense of the danger of abortion, and also the fact that both girls are forced to have their terminations by older lovers. The sense that these movies give us is that teenage girls are so vulnerable in deep danger of corruption, even girls who you didn't realise you had to worry about, sweet, good-natured girls. And so the film seems to suggest that what is needed in order to remedy this is to keep girls under strict surveillance to maintain their purity and their innocence. In a review from a 1928 edition of Photoplay, A critic named Cliff Brufton notes that the film was sponsored by the juvenile courts. So again, this idea that it is educational material. And he labels it, and this is a direct quote from him, not entertainment, but darn good medicine for parents who trust their children implicitly. Of the 1934 version, the motion picture Herald declared that, and this is a direct quote as well, Once again, the screen takes it upon itself to indicate to young people the dangers that lurk in the path of young girls and to point out to parents the necessity of telling their growing daughters the facts of life. Note the explicitly gendered morality tale here. They're writing specifically about 
the dangers that lurk in the path of young girls, not all young people. It's the girl that is considered to be in danger of immorality and she's at risk of straying from the path of purity and innocence. Perhaps purity and innocence means a whole lot more for girls than it does for boys. So focusing the morality tale on girl viewers seems to say, well, you know, boys will be boys, but girls have to stick to a strict set of regulations and expectations or else. And this also, I think, reflects a tendency that I notice a lot, which is that we tend to evaluate teen films or films for teenagers or films that have teenagers in them on the basis of whether or not the film is good for teenagers in ways that we perhaps don't tend to do for films that are made for adults. So the question, is it good for young people, seems to also bleed into the question, is this a good film? And to me, that brings up a lot of really interesting issues. So when I hear that, I think, okay, well, good by whose standards, by whose moral compass? And then I think, you know, how does film actually affect young people? And is that effect straightforward? How critically engaged are young people with the media that they are consuming and engaging with? And are we actually doing them a disservice by not asking them and instead deciding on their behalf? And Catherine Driscoll, who I mentioned in episode one of the podcast, writes about this in her book on the genre. And the book is just called Teen Film. And this is a direct quote from her. She says, This tendency to moral judgment reflects a tendency in the genre itself to take a moral tone that understands adolescence as both an object of training and a subject of crisis. I really love how she puts it there. So sex and teen pregnancy weren't the only things that Hollywood films were concerned about during that period. And for instance, there are a number of quite sort of infamous, I suppose, and quite wild pre-code and exploitation films about young people whose lives are destroyed by drug use. And some of my favourites include a film called Reefer Madness, which um, is also sometimes known as Tell Your Children and also Doped Youth. And then another film called She Shoulda Said No, which is sometimes called Devil's Weed, which honestly I think is probably the greatest film title of all time. And both of those films are free to watch on YouTube and elsewhere on the internet as well. Highly recommend. Advertising for these movies, just like the other ones we've talked about today, are so sensationalised. Marijuana is described as the burning weed with its roots in hell. Another ad asks... How bad can a good girl get? In an exploitation film from 1936, very simply entitled Marijuana, which was made with the cooperation of the federal, state and police narcotics officials, these two moral crises, pregnancy and drug use, collide with the main character who's a teenager, falls pregnant while she's high on drugs. Her drug-dealing boyfriend is killed, so is her friend, And when she has to give up her baby for adoption, she becomes a heroin addict. So it's a really, really interesting example of both of these highly charged, highly mythologized and sensationalized elements of youth culture at the time coming together in an incredibly dramatic and really interesting fashion. So all of these films that I've mentioned just now 
are cult classics for a lot of movie buffs. And for good reason, they're so scandalous. They're so interesting and sometimes downright funny in their overt moralizing propaganda. And they're really interesting to watch as a modern audience. So I really do recommend watching those if this podcast has piqued your interest in them. One of the reasons, for me at least, that these movies are so interesting is that many of them are designed to frighten young people away from bad behavior. And we get that through these representations of punishment, you know, usually death, sometimes things like imprisonment. But what's interesting to me is that these punishments only come right at the end. It's like 30 seconds of punishment. But the rest of the movie, we see like this glamorous, sensationalized depiction of an excessive, decadent, wildly fun time that these teenagers are having. So I don't know, for me at least, the thing that stays with me when I'm thinking back on these films as I'm talking right now, I think about like the fabulous fur coats and the towers of champagne flutes that are overflowing with bubbly wine and extended scenes of people just singing and dancing, having a great time at a party. And I think the reason why I remember these things the most is because that's what the film spends the most time on. You know, you get like an hour or an hour and a half of that and then, you know, 30 to 60 seconds of horrifying punishment. So while that deterrent of the punishment, it's definitely there, it's definitely dramatic and it's definitely important in our understanding of the movies, it only arrives after that seductive, beautiful hour and a half of good times, basically. And so I wonder, and I don't really have an answer to this, but it gets me wondering about the extent to which these morality tales actually changed people's minds or actually did the opposite, like awoke curiosity in people instead. And to me, that's really the beauty of this period of filmmaking, that there are all these rules and regulations that are sort of suggested to be followed, that perhaps get followed in some ways and then left off in other ways. And so we get these really interesting, sensational movies in that little sweet spot between 1930 and 1934 that really push the boundaries of what could be said, what could be shown in the cinema. And then next week, we're going to travel forward in time to 1940s Hollywood. And this is when the censorship code was really well and truly ensconced. And we'll be looking at how representations of pregnancy shifted under the weight of that code, if at all. And we'll find out when we talk about a really fascinating film that challenged censorship even while it was being created right in the middle of it. And it's a film called The Miracle at Morgan's Creek, directed by the legendary Preston Sturges. So I really hope you'll join me next time for that. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Teen Screen Feminism podcast, I would so appreciate a rating or a review on whatever platform you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying this season so far, please consider subscribing so each episode automatically downloads to your device of choice. This podcast was research written, presented by me, Athena Bellis, and it was edited by Claire Gorn. Thank you so much for listening and see you in a couple of weeks' time.